This is WWVUFM Morgantown, and welcome to Say Something Nice, the weekly music discussion show on United 2 The Moose, where Griffin and Anthony recommend each other an album that the other has not heard, uh, and then they say something nice. I am Anthony. I'm Griffin. Uh, and this is the second episode. Welcome back, if you listened last week. Uh, we made it we to have, two. We did. I'm impressed with us. We didn't get uh, cut off after the pilot. So <laughs> we're back for more. Um, I recommended Griffin, the album Loom by Katie Gately. Yeah, and I recommended to uh, my dear friend Anthony, uh, Ariel Pink's 2014 record, Pom Pom. Sweet. And uh, Griffin, if you would like to go ahead and introduce that, we're going to start off with the Ariel Pink record. Yeah, so Ariel Pink uh, is an artist who has been on the sort of uh it began him his work on the sort of cassette uh tape circuit in the uh mid 90s uh, a lot of that work was sort of hyper local as much of the cassette culture back then was uh with the exception of some uh larger acts that sort of were birthed from that from that movement um however in 2003 he signed to uh animal collective's record label paw tracks and released a little bit, uh, a slightly higher profile material, got a bit more notoriety. And then in 2010, signed to 4AD to release his debut album, um, Before Today. Uh, great little album made up of mostly pre-released material. Not the album we're talking about today, but I felt like that showing how long he was releasing music uh, before this album was kind of important because uh, this, uh, he considers it himself in an interview, uh, Pom Pom, he said this was his first, quote, real album. Um, and the reason he released it under his, uh, just his solo name, as opposed to Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti, which was his band slash stage name. It, it was mostly a solo project, but there was a touring band associated with it. Uh, that's all of his other albums were released with that Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti moniker. This one was just released under his own name because he wanted to give it a different feel. So this is very much, even at the time, was a standout album in his discography. Uh, and it was his 10th studio album by this point. Uh, so yeah, I think it was interesting that late in the career, putting out so much of what I think he would consider himself to be his like magnum opus and what critics at the time certainly did. So uh, Anthony, what did you think of this little record? Yeah, it definitely feels like a magnum opus, uh, especially with the length. It's like 70 minutes long. Um, but also, it's really interesting, uh, again, as you mentioned, and I knew a little bit about Ariel Pink, that he had been in the game for so long, like 20 years almost, right, after before releasing uh, this album, which was really his breakout. Mm-hmm. Um, the one of the... What stood out to me the most on first listen uh, was the variety of styles on this, which was impressive in and of itself. Um, there's like 80s hard rock kind of like, and like that kind of throwback, like 70s psychedelic vibe, like Pink Floyd and stuff, but also just off the wall Indian synth pop uh, and like some Beach Boys influence as well. Uh, and he pulls from so many different areas and is not kind of pulled down by that uh, kind of psych category that I know some of his work gets thrown into a little bit. 
Yeah, um, the thing about uh, upon revisiting this album that kind of stuck out to me is that he's always been an artist, which especially it's interesting how well it translated uh, to when he started making studio albums. He's always operated in the lo-fi and he started out, you know, on that cassette tape uh, scene. So that work is inherently lo-fi. It's interesting how authentically lo-fi both this album and um, the other big one he released with 4AD uh, before today sound like they don't sound like they were recorded in big studios and then made to be muddy. They sound like they were authentically made using sort of, uh, I hesitate to say rudimentary um, because nothing feels super amateurish about this album. It feels very intentional to me. Yeah. He definitely but, knows uh, what he's doing with the equipment that he's using because he's been using it for so long. Yeah. And um, I do, I do think there's even just a thing with like the style of instrument and guitar that he's, playing on these albums um that make it have that kind of throwback sound uh another thing that that goes for that though is that a lot of these uh or i wouldn't say a lot of these tracks but some of the goofier ones on the uh on the track list uh like uh nude beach a go-go sexual athletics tracks like that were co-written by um kim fowley who is uh, a songwriter and producer who was best known for like some novelty and uh, pop rock singles in the 60s and 70s. He also managed um, The Runaways, which was Joan Jett's uh, first band. Mm. Um, kind of a controversial figure today because he was, uh, had, had several sexual assault allegations leveled against him in the 21st century, which it felt necessary to mention before <laughs> continuing to talk about how this album was made. Um, he did have a hand in the track list, but at uh, that time, I do think that that kind of lends the authentically kind of old school feel like these don't mm-hmm. feel like th- these don't feel like tracks that were just made to um, parody or pastiche the sounds that they're working with. They sound like tracks that were very genuinely and earnestly influenced by these sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely got that too. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Kim was a pretty frequent collaborator, like songwriting partner for Ariel. Um, f- from what I saw, he mostly worked on this record because okay. he died shortly thereafter. Right. Um, That's what I, I don't know how much of uh, prior material mm-hmm. um, he worked on with, okay. with Ariel Pink. Yeah, and it's. I'm glad that you brought up the sexual assault allegations against him because in doing my small amount of research in this too, I came to the conclusion that Ariel Pink was not my favorite guy. Uh, but I really, I tried to not let that influence my enjoyment of the album too much. Yeah, so we can talk about that a little bit before we get back into the music because I also did want to bring that up. Um, under uh, When talking about promotion, he says that, uh, quote, he didn't even get to promote this record per se. Uh, he mm-hmm. was put on a very strange track of trying to double down or back up things I said or supposedly said or said in response to someone. Um, and then he uses some slurs, which I won't yes, yeah. for air. Thank but you. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I do think Ariel, I've been a fan of Ariel Pink's music for a long time. Around the time of this record, and I've heard various stories about how he can be a hard person to work with um, during the recording of his album uh, before today, his first one with 4AD. Um, 
several members of his band that were helping with the record quit at various times, including him uh, himself. Uh, he, he was away from the record for a little while, and it was apparently just a nightmare to record uh, by everyone involved. Uh, and he, he's never come across as the easiest person to work with. Um, and he's kind of known for these stunts that he played, I believe it was Coachella, uh, and halfway through his set just turned his back to the audience and refused to sing. Uh, he, he does come across as a bit of, I, I can't curse as we are putting this on, <laughs> a, bit, a bit of a not excellent person all the time. I do think recently he's kind of uh, gained some conscientiousness about that um, and has kind of mellowed out a tad. But mm-hmm. around this time, especially, uh, ba- most things he did, and I, this might have been something that led to him uh, getting dropped from 4AD. Mm-hmm. He was kind of a liability in the public sphere uh, around this time, just basically every interview, every public appearance he did and yeah. with some kind of controversy. Yeah, it seemed like every review or what I was seeing about the reviews in this time, he would drop at least one very misogynistic comment and just be like, no, it's fine. Like, I didn't, I didn't say that. Yeah, it a questionable figure, but a, a questionable figure. Questionable it, it makes figure. it very strange because I feel like this album is pretty beloved, even at the time when all this was happening. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't know if that just is a testament to how good the record is, or if that was a time where it was maybe a little bit easier to separate the um, art from the artists, uh, as it were, because this was still a little bit before Twitter and social media right. was like the juggernaut that it is now and so unignorable. Um, this was still kind of one of those things where you could listen to the music and just kind of block out the rest of it if you so chose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what combination of that yeah. uh, led to this record being not as controversial. Um, because it, it's weird. It's not that uh, Ariel Pink himself by this point uh, wasn't a semi-controversial figure, but the music he was being released was pretty universally acclaimed. Yeah. And um, I didn't go deep into reading a lot of reviews, but from what I skimmed, not a lot of them mentioned his goings on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, See, so yeah, I don't know what would what would lead to that being more ignored. But yeah, uh, I mean, it's definitely interesting. I think the uh, universal acclaim definitely has something to do with it. But like I said, I really tried to not let that influence my opinion on the album because there's so many artists that I know I love that have not even like allegations, but it's just like true that they were not good people at all. Like. Lou Reed, Captain Beefheart, just to name two people that yeah. were just absolutely horrible, uh, well, but whose think, music I, I adore. Be, it might be easier with this record because the music itself is so far removed from any element of Ariel Pink's personal life, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not writing from a place of like, these are my opinions on things throughout right. most of the record. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some moments of that, but largely I would say um, these these... Well, part of the, some of the things that makes uh, these songs so interesting is that a lot of them are uh, kind of story songs that focus yeah. on a character or a group of characters uh, that feel made up from whole cloth. You know, they don't feel like they have been inspired. Yeah, they, there's no sense events. of autobiography in it or anything. Yeah. Um, which is interesting to say that as well, though, because this is very much, this album could not be made by anyone else. It's a very, 
uh, idiosyncratic yeah. album. Definitely. Um, um, that being with, said, let's, let's uh, <laughs> move on, yeah. talk more about the music, which is, that's a good yeah. transition into it. Um, and the idiosyncrat- idiosyncrasy, I don't know. Yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Kind of ties into my next point that at times this record kind of reminds me of like a modern Frank Zappa, um, especially on something like Nude Beach A Go Go, uh, where he's yeah, it's kind interesting of. Interesting you say that because um, he cited the Mothers of Inven- uh, Invention as one of the main influence on the record as a yeah, whole. Yeah, and you can really hear it, especially with those kind of like surfy Beach Boys sounds where they really take the sound but then just totally make it as wacky as possible. Uh, especially with the content that they're singing about uh, while simultaneously being fantastic musicians and paying a lot of respect to the sounds that they're pulling from. Um, And then going on about that sound, a lot of it is really happy aside from the heavier songs on the track list, uh, like not enough violence or something, but like Nude Beach A Go-Go, and I think One Summer Night, Put Your Number In My Phone, uh, are all like, White Freckles too, are all really upbeat uh, tracks. Um, But not all of, like a lot of the songs have uh, like very violent topics that go along with these heavy uh, or happy songs, which is always an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, yeah, it was. It's kind of funny you bring that up. I was listening to this record again earlier today in preparation, and uh, just because uh, I didn't get enough sleep the night before, I started to daze <laughs> off. And in that state, I kind of realized like these songs are kind of messed up. Like, yeah, the, a lot of them are. And it's like I, I I realized the lyrical content of them, but it wasn't until then that I realized how grim several of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's easy to get lost in like they're just excellent hooks all over the record, and the kind of. <clears throat> like retro um kind of uh uh campy instrumentals yeah um kind of take that edge away from it a lot of the time even on tracks like some of the more serious ones like not enough violence uh, or lipstick which is about just about a serial killer Mm -hmm. uh from what i can tell from the lyrics but it's just just such a jam (laughs) there's just (laughs) you can just bob your head to it Mm mm-hmm uh, and with that being said, if you are listening to this podcast on any of our digital platforms, you can check out more great student-produced content at unitytothemoose.com, Anchor, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. Uh, if you're listening right now on 91.7, United to the Moose, we're going to take a short break, but more of Say Something Nice is coming up next on United to the Moose. So yeah, going along that same line uh oh wait give me a second mm-hmm. i don't know if i should do some sort of like welcome back eh, we can probably just keep it going okay i'm just gonna keep it going then so going along those same lines uh about the content of the music this entire album at least from what i picked up uh aside from a few tracks here and there is really just about sex and violence and that's yeah largely um there's some interesting some of the more earnest or uh yeah i I guess earnest would be the word tracks Mm -hmm. on here um there's a few tracks that go toward aging 
Um, that yes, might have been yeah, inspired. Picture Me Gone. Yeah, Picture Me Gone, which I think is a genuinely beautifully written uh, and mm-hmm. performed track. Um, Days in Daydreams, The Closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are moments on that that are, are very um, earnest and, and tender and everything. Uh, tracks like that, I, I think and those are some of the most autobiographical on, mm-hmm. on here. Um, or personal, usually, at the very least. Yeah, because usually they're still talking through characters. Uh, Picture Me Gone is a kind of a conversation between a, a father and a son mm-hmm. um, where at that time, and I don't believe even now so, I don't think Ariel Pink has a child. Um, but uh, so yeah, autobiographic is not the right word, but definitely more more personal leaning than most of the tracks mm-hmm. on here. Or emotional at least. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, and uh, it's moments like that that because one of the criticisms of this album and I'd say Ariel Pink in general, or at least since he started recording more studio and more popular music are that um, he makes pop music from like this knowing irony of thinking he's too good for pop music. And that's Mm -hmm. not the vibe I get from him at all, especially on these more earnest tracks. I think he's taking these kind of weirder, and niche and forgotten sounds from the pop music of the past and keeping them like earnestly goofy, just like they were at the time they were made and Mm -hmm. kind of transforming them into something that's very uh, 21st century and very now. But these earnest tracks, I think show that he's not just, this isn't just a joke to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, even with that being said, like not always is kind of like goofy or just off the wall music. Uh, a joke even if it is comical which this album definitely at times is Uh, but that kind of leads me into one of my big criticisms of the album is that a lot of the humor on here kind of feels cheap to me uh, and just doesn't sit well for me Um, like a lot of like uh, like I mentioned earlier a lot of this album is written about sex but it's always kind of a comical flip or take on it Mm -hmm. uh and that just like that sexual humor just kind of really falls flat on me i mean there's some uh some parts that i do find genuinely funny uh like on black ballerina whenever it's what's the line like i like your areolas baby yeah yeah it's like like that has me laughing yeah and like the rest of that song like the sexual humor just really falls flat on me uh, and kind of reminds me, uh, which I mean, this might not be your opinion of it at all and that's fine, uh, but reminds me more of like the kind of like adult cartoon shows or something like Big Mouth or something. Uh, and that sexual humor just doesn't really do much for me. Yeah. Um, to me, that humor is, it is going to be hit or miss. There are a lot of bands that have, and for me, this is why Pom Pom, I said this when I was thinking about it earlier, I think it might be Ariel Pink's best record, but it's personally not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because some of the goofier tracks on here are still like just a little too out there for me to like really revisit all the time. There are some that I do really like, like Nude Beach A Go-Go is one of my favorite songs on here. Yeah, That's an extremely that. goofy track, mm-hmm. but I just think that the hook on it is so good. But there are some yeah, sexual athletics, I'm not coming back to that track a ton. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, in any case, uh, I was going to say that that goofiness to me, um, it is going to be one of those things that's hit or miss, but it is one of those things that uh, as well comes from an earnest place of recreation. Cause mm-hmm. that's, that's an element that does remind me of an artist like Frank Zappa um, who had in his catalog, a lot of like goofier and kind of crass and raunchy uh, tracks at points. Definitely. Um, uh, or or even like a band like Wayne from the nineties, Wayne mm-hmm. have uh, several tracks that are like that as well. Uh, to me, I, I prefer the way that Ariel Pink does it uh, to either of those two acts. Because mm-hmm. to me, it feels like, um, and this might be me trying to excuse it more than mm-hmm. anything even, but it feels almost like a character. You know what I mean? Right. Um, th- and that might be kind of disingenuous feeling after I just said that this isn't just an ironic <laughs> thing. But I think there's, there's a mix of irony in with it, but I don't think it's purely that. You know what I mean? Right. And I think that goes along the same lines as the other artists that you mentioned, Zappa and Ween, which I'm not as familiar with either of those are. I'm probably equally as familiar with them as I am Ariel Pink, but I know like a lot of Zappa's stuff was just supposed to be funny. Even his more crude uh, cuts weren't necessarily, in my opinion, his way of thinking. Um, yeah. But then like uh, I do appreciate that kind of weirdness and goofiness on other tracks, specifically uh, the one that you mentioned, Lipstick. Um, Cause it's just so funny. Like you said, it's about a serial killer, but told from the point of view of a possum, which is just like the kind of thing where it's like, why, like, why did you think of that? <laughs> and I'm, I appreciate him writing the song from that perspective because it just makes it uh, a lot better in my opinion. And I like when he takes uh, those interesting narrative positions. Yeah. And I think that the songwriting on here, I do think it's varied. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that that is just some tracks. This feels almost like a conceptual greatest hits album, um, Mm -hmm. because just in the way that the songs are written, they're not written very consistently. Uh, there are some things that are more instrumental or for lack of a better term, like vibe focused, Mm uh, than they are focused on the lyrics. But I think when Ariel Pink specifically focuses on lyrics or tries to tell a story with his lyrics, he does really interesting things within these songs like on lipstick like on picture me gone um what's another one on here uh one summer night is Mm -hmm. just a great little love song on it put your number on my phone that's a funny like put your number on my phone is a very it's a very just straightforward uh you know kind of first love song uh where you're first meeting this person but just the the way it goes about handling that topic lyrically is very like cute and funny and interesting and relatable in a way that not a lot of other artists would handle that subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and Ariel definitely has like a very unique uh, and strong uh, lyrical ability and songwriting ability. Um, Cause one of the, I think it's the only lyric that I actually wrote down in my notes, but I wanted to mention it. Uh, is on Nude Beach a go-go, uh, the line, and chiffon and silk and wool and cotton, they are all forgotten. Is just, I don't know. I just really appreciated that line whenever yeah. I heard it. Uh, and he has lines like that throughout um, where it's just really sharp songwriting uh, throughout a lot of the record. Um, but with that being said, uh, 
with an album this long, there's of course going to be tracks that I don't necessarily like as much. And the ones that I don't really like as much are usually the ones that I feel are weird for the sake of being weird and don't really add as much to the project. Um, specifically, I'm going to say uh, Dinosaur Care Bears and Jello, and also Black Ballerina to an effect, but that's also mostly just because I don't really like the lyrics on that one, uh, mm-hmm. despite that song is an absolute jam. And if the lyrics were different, it would be one of my favorites on the album, I think. Um, but yeah, Dinosaur Care Bears, like the whole beginning of it, uh, like that carnival switch up doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> I yeah. didn't really love that. Uh, and I'd really prefer it was just the second, like spacier part of. I would say the Dinosaur Care Bears is probably one of my least favorite tracks on the, on the track list as well. Um, in some ways, I agree with you. I appreciate the parts where he goes weird for weird sake, but it doesn't always work. Those experiments don't always work for me. Um, I can excuse the lyrics enough on Black Ballerina, but uh, Jello, the other one you mentioned, yeah, it doesn't always work for me. Like I said, this is not my favorite Ariel Pink record. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, <laughs> as kind of contradictory as it is to say, not my favorite, but his best. And I would say, I guess, I mean by that, his most emblematic of who he is as an artist. Right. Um, like you said, it's kind of like a greatest hits. It really shows what he's capable of and what he has done. Like all, It encompasses all of his different sounds, kind of, I feel like, in one Yeah, product. and that's, if I can go into my favorite Aero Pink record real quick, was the follow-up to this mm-hmm. that was uh, then released on Mexican Summer uh, Records after he left 4AD. Uh, dedicated to Bobby Jameson. The tracks that are sort of more weird and experimental and more deviative from the pop form um, on that album, I think the experiments on that album work out much more interestingly and much less kind of exhaustingly. Um, And it's weird to see an artist as not, I don't believe he's that old actually, but just who's been, in the game as long as he has mm-hmm. still reaching some of his best material yet i think yeah definitely um and that that's one thing that makes ariel pink a very exciting voice in the music uh industry even now um <laughs> at the time of this album though in 2014 it did feel like he was kind of everywhere uh like I'd mentioned to you off mic, but uh, I'll say it for the listeners at home. Mm-hmm. The track Nude Beach A Go Go, which we've mentioned several times already, was actually covered by uh, Azalea Banks for her debut album around the same time, which is such an interesting collaboration. Uh, he reportedly was asked to write for Madonna, which again led to one of his kind of semi misogynistic yeah. yeah, outbursts. Um, but uh, he, he was a lot of different places at this time. I, I don't doubt that he was asked to write for Madonna, though the story has never officially been uh, corroborated with anyone from her team, I don't believe. But just the places where he was as a songwriter at this point and as an artist, he was reaching some of his highest points yet, mm-hmm. which again is just objectively impressive being that this is his 10th studio album. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that, not necessarily that it, took him that long but just the fact that he was in the like he had been making music for so long before he really had his breakout album Um, yeah um and he did have some hits before this um off of uh before today especially once he signed when he was with um 
the Animal Collective, when he was with Animal Collective's record label, mm-hmm. he was still fairly small, but he had enough, you know, money and, and uh, hype to tour and do some shows and everything. Um, but once he signed to 4AD, he uh, came out with a couple hits. Uh, Round and Round was a super huge song at the time, got him on uh, uh, the late talk shows. I forget who was hosting it at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 2010 was a long time ago, man. I was 10 years old. It was. Uh, <laughs> but Round and Round, Bright Lit Blue Skies, these are uh, very famous songs and ones that he still tours today. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did have some hits before this. It wasn't absolutely out of nowhere, but it did definitely um, bolster his presence and introduce him to uh, a lot of new listeners at the time. Definitely. Uh, With that, I think I'm going to go ahead and get into my closing thoughts on the album. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought I was going to enjoy this more. Honestly, I have a lot of praise for this album, uh, but I'm not sure if I'm going to come back to it. Part of it is definitely that 70-minute runtime. uh, And that is probably what does it most for me. Like, I feel like a lot, some of these songs here definitely could have been cut. uh, And maybe Ariel's thought process, this is kind of me just being a bit, uh, I guess, blunt. But I, in my mind, he was just thinking like, eh, it's already a double album. Might as well lengthen some of these last songs to use up the rest of the space on the disc because it's there. I might as well get my money's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's disappointing because the last three songs, uh, Picture Me Gone, Exile in Frog Street, and Dazed in Daydreams are three of my favorite songs on the record. But even then, like, by the time we get to these songs, I'm ready for the album to be over. Uh, And then these three songs are three of the longest songs on the album. They're like five and a half, almost five minutes and almost five minutes long. Uh, And at this point, it's just dragging on for me. And it it ends up feeling a bit overindulgent and kind of just like needlessly long at this point. Um, but aside from that, like, I really enjoyed the album. There's so many high points on here to go through them real quick, like lipstick, put your number in my phone, one summer night, new beach, a go, go. Uh, I enjoyed sexual athletics. And then those last three songs that I just mentioned, uh, were all really great. And I really enjoyed the high points on this record. Uh, but for me, it was just a little bit too long, uh, was probably my main, uh, criticism for it. Yeah, I think that's a very a very valid criticism and one that I'm surprised I didn't see more because in my opinion, yeah, the album does drag a little bit. I think it hits a high point starting at Lipstick mm-hmm. that kind of continues on until maybe Goth Bomb or thereabouts. Yeah. But then there's like a, a solid little stretch there before, like, and I agree, I think those last three tracks are, are some of the best on the album. There's that stretch there where it just doesn't uh, work for me too consistently not that those songs are bad necessarily they're they're decent but they're just too many just okay tracks right next to each other mm-hmm. um that yeah i think it is kind of a mixed album from that perspective but it still goes down as to me one of the uh, best and most interesting pop albums of the last decade just because of those high points Mm-hmm. And and those idiosyncrasies, it's such an interesting and unique album. And yeah, like I said, I think it's Ariel Pink's best. I think if you are interested in looking into Ariel Pink's discography uh, from any perspective, this is definitely the starting point. For sure. Uh, even if you have to yeah. skip around a little bit to find the tracks that you really like. 
Yeah, uh, with that, we're going to listen to my favorite song on the album here. So here is Put Your Number in My Phone by Ariel Pink, and we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to Say Something Nice on U92 The Moose. There's magic in the air The night sky breaks your face Like a mystery left uncovered podcast on any of our digital platforms you can check out more great student produced content at u92themoose.com anchor spotify and on soundcloud if you're listening right now on 91.7 u92 the moose we're taking a short break but more of say something nice is coming up next on u92 the moose welcome back to say something nice i am anthony i'm here with griffin uh and we're gonna go ahead start talking about our second record for today, which is Loom by Katie Gately. Uh, Katie Gately is uh, an LA-based musician, producer, and sound designer. Uh, trained in sound design, she went to school, uh, film school, and was trained in sound design for film, which I think contributes a lot to her production style uh, and the techniques that she uses. Um, this is her 
sophomore LP taking on a much darker tone uh, and themes from her first album because uh, she started recording this album right after uh, her mother was diagnosed with a very uh, rare and aggressive form of cancer uh, and dumped a- another album that she was almost completely done with, but she just didn't feel comfortable releasing it uh, and didn't feel comfortable uh, releasing an album just for the sake of releasing it uh, because she did not uh, feel that it fit her mood well enough or kind of what she was going through. And so she took uh, the inspiration, I suppose is not necessarily the right word to use, um, but what was going on in her life and that kind of grieving. Uh, And instead of making an album that's necessarily about grieving, she made an album that was just made while grieving. Uh, And it kind of shows in how dark the album comes across as. Uh, But with that, I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to Griffin. What did you think of this album? Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for recommending this, the the feel-good album of the (laughs) summer. The weather's warm, the sun is out, and I am listening to Loom by Katie Gately. No, this album was a, a, a harrowing listen at a lot of points, but mm. I thought that at the, by, by the end, I thought it was really great. Um, it did take me a little while to come to that conclusion. Um, uh, there were parts uh, on Pun First Listen that really grabbed me. That uh, 10 minute uh, centerpiece that you mentioned, uh, what, what is the name of that track? Bracer. Bracer, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is uh, a hell of a track. That is an excellent excellent song and i think that that shows the album is at its fullest potential that song like had me and that was a song at the time let me go through my experience with this album uh the first song was just a perfectly fine little uh pseudo ambient uh electronic uh instrumental uh and then the first two tracks after that uh reminded me kind of of like a lingua ignata but for the npr listener um like it it does have that kind of neoclassical and dark wave mm-hmm. influence um katie gately is using much more uh electronic uh of an electronic pl- palette than uh lingua ignata did on that uh, on her most recent record that i that was fresh in my mind uh while listening to this uh the first time around but um it didn't grab me as much it, mm-hmm. it, i had the same sort of problems with it at first as i do with like uh uh Haley herndon uh mm-hmm. album yeah or something like that where it's a little bit too detached and i'm like this sounds nice and i'm sure the lyrics are great but uh i there's nothing there there was not a lot there for me to connect to mm-hmm. um and it was when I got to that track Bracer that it started to kind of like click in place that I saw like she was being more intentionally reserved on those first couple of tracks. Um, and I think there are moments on Bracer where she starts out kind of reserved, but that is such like a multiphasic track that comes to many like uh, emotional climaxes throughout the, the 10 minute run um, where she really starts to like let loose and, uh, mm-hmm. and do some, some new and uh, crazy things with both, her vocals and the production on the album in general. Um, I was interesting to see, uh, or, or it was interesting to see rather the 
thought that went into this album like i want to do more uh reading on it but just in my small amount of research that i did um and i didn't i cut myself off intentionally because i wanted you to kind of fill in some of the blanks there Mm -hmm. but the um sounds that she used uh throughout much of this there are sampled uh earthquakes yes um which was a thing that after I read that, I was like, I, it was like a, a, a memento moment where like my mind was just like open. And I was like, oh, wait, those were being used like the whole time. Like, and that was a thing that I didn't even like take into account until mm-hmm. I read that. Um, but also there's just a lot of other, there are uh, recordings from her parents' wedding, mm-hmm. um, uh, pill bottle shaking, peacocks screaming. Uh, each sounds that uh, she said she chose for their associative power, which again goes to show her background. You said she had a background in uh, sound film soundtracks mm-hmm. and sound design. Yeah, that is definitely a big thing that goes into this album, um, which is interesting because it's ostensibly at its core, a singer songwriter record. Yeah. These are very songwritery tracks, um, but I think the care with which they're, given on the instrumental and production side go through to uh sort of flush them out that much more it feels like she like went all the way with these concepts for sure yeah and that uh the sounds that she uses and her production style makes this uh for me at least one of the most just meticulously put together albums that i've heard in such a long time like everything uh See, like it seems like it was so just labored over and everything was constructed uh, so carefully all across this record, which makes it so interesting for me because there's just so much going on in every single one of these instrumentals. Um, and to go back to that kind of found sound thing, uh, pretty much I think everything on this, like there's very few actual instruments that she uses. Well, there's no acoustic instruments uh, Cause there's like strings and stuff that show up on the album, but they're all synth patches. Um, See, I but, wouldn't have guessed that. Some of those strings sound like really good. Right. Yeah. But uh, pretty much everything is made from these sounds uh, and manipulated sound because although all of those sounds are present, you'd be pretty hard pressed upon listening to this album to pick any of them out. Uh, and even uh, watching some interviews, with Katie, um, she has said there's songs on here, like, because of course the peacock screaming, it's kind of like the infamous, like that's on this album somewhere, but even Katie, yeah. do, she doesn't like, it's so far removed. She doesn't even remember what song it's on. Uh, yeah. Because they're really, uh, these sounds are, are definitely uh, bastardized for lack yeah. of a better word, <laughs> and turned into something entirely new. Mm-hmm. She, takes a lot of these sounds and just manipulates the hell out of them until they're totally irrecognizable. Like you said, um, uh, the recordings of her parents' wedding and stuff uh, is what makes up a good bit of the song's tower, but it just sounds like a dark ambient soundscape for the entire like first couple minutes of that song. You would never know that it was you would never guess the original source of so many sounds on this album. Yeah, it's interesting to hear, and in doing some of this reading, I heard that her first record, which I haven't listened to yet at the time of recording this, was much more uh, 
pop centric or at least was more mm-hmm. hook focused and um uh presumably slightly less dour anyway um but it's interesting in those moments like tower and especially how you said i i would not have guessed that that was the track that uh used those clips from her parents wedding mm-hmm. um and i that was a track that made me kind of shocked to learn that so much of this is made up of found sound to the point where there are no uh, real recorded instruments or very few anyway mm-hmm. um, because of those songs like tower there's still like a solid progression on a track like that and a somewhat decent hook by the end yeah like that that track especially and uh bracer i think are some of the more pop oriented songs on there even though bracer is a 10 minute epic <laughs> there are moments on it that kind of uh sound like something that she might have made in the past uh mm-hmm. being as well that was the first track that she made for this batch of songs for sure yeah um with that uh i would like to say if you're listening to this podcast on any of our digital platforms you can check out more great student produced content at u92themoose.com anchor spotify and on soundcloud if you're listening right now on 91.7 u92 the moose we're going to take a short break but more of say something nice is coming up next on u92 the moose yeah kind of building off uh what you just said, I do definitely want to mention that for as experimental and left field and just uh, crazy as this album gets, Katie never abandons that sense of melody and that sense of a great hook that I find uh, she has a really just a fantastic talent for. Uh, And all across this album, like there's only like five what I would call real songs, but every single one of them has what I would consider to be like a really just kind of powerful hook on it. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because there are a few songs that I, and and maybe I'd have to go back and listen to the album again. I've still only listened to it a a relatively few amount of times and I expect to uh, revisit or visit it uh, a lot more in the future. But um the hooks did not really stand out to me throughout a lot of this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that made the moments where they did feel especially noteworthy. Um, like on Brace or like on Tower. A little bit on Flow uh, hooks stood out to me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mostly just those first two uh, actual tracks, LA and Waltz. Um, although I did want to talk about Waltz for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> there was almost kind of a, a dark cabaret sound on that one. Uh-huh. I don't know if that was just something that I was picking up on. It has the kind of up-down kind of sway of like a, a dark cabaret track. I don't know if that was an intentional influence on that at all. But I thought it was an int- It was not something I expected to hear after those first, uh, you know, that intro and the mm-hmm. uh, first actual song, LA. Um, yeah. No, it definitely is. Yeah. And I mean, it's very true to the song's title, Waltz, because it is in that 3-4 kind of the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. Like, waltz feel like it is a waltz um but i think it actually took influence i i think i remember her saying uh in some interview that uh waltz is influenced by uh a leonard cohen song with a similar name uh it's not waltz but i think it has waltz in the title somewhere which i'm not uh it's something a little bit later in his discography that i'm not as familiar with but it has that kind of like really dark waltz uh sound to it yeah that's interesting uh, i'd be curious to know 
both generally and for this album specifically, how much influence she took from other electronic music producers versus singer-songwriters. Because this is an mm-hmm. album kind of similarly to uh, another album that was in my mind while I was listening to it was uh, FK Twig's last record, Magdalene. Okay. Um, I think but that both of those records lie in that kind of middle space between a uh, an electronic uh, sort of um, experimental electronic, especially focused record and a lyrical songwriting focused record. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one I find to be a little more noteworthy from that aspect because uh, it's, I, I don't know if she worked with any collaborators, but from what I know, it's Katie Gately just doing the, the I'm pretty sure it's bulk just of, her, yeah. Yeah, of all of the things involved, whereas FK Twigs, uh, I did, I do believe did most of the songwriting, but did very, very little of the production on her mm-hmm. last full length. Um, so the fact that Katie Gately is pulling uh, double duty here is very noteworthy, I, mm-hmm. I would think. Um, it is strange to me that there was even a single from this record. That there were two singles, and it was the two first songs. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm just seeing that now on her uh, on her Apple Music page. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very strange to me that there's a single from this record. Yeah, there's actually a music video for Waltz too. Uh, I'd be really interested in seeing that music video. It's good. I enjoy it. It's good. It's, yeah. It definitely it fits that uh, kind of dark vibe. It, it has to deal with. Uh, it deals with um, kind of like the uh, possession kind of uh, mm. thing, which that song uh, kind of gears towards to a little bit in a way, like it connects a little bit. And I think the music video tries to do this. Um, Waltz and Bracer are both uh, about kind of like coping uh, with grief and stuff in general. And I know mm. uh, Katie has mentioned that her coping mechanism that she chose or I don't, I don't necessarily want to say chose, but uh, what she kind of turned to uh, was whiskey a lot. Um, and that kind of the music video kind of uh, deals with that sort of addiction, like shadowy kind of in a shadowy kind of figure uh, mm. aspect and shows that. It's, can I ask you how you think an album like this Mm-hmm. And it, uh, I hate even comparing them really, but I do think they're topically similar and it's worth uh, discussing. But how do you think an album like this compares to uh, an album like A Crow Looked at Me by uh, by Mount Erie? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the big thing is the narrative that each album takes on uh, because A Crow Looked at Me, if I'm not, I, it's really hard for me to listen to that album. I've only listened through it all the way through one time i think but it's fair like it's a first person point of view for the majority of that album correct Mm -hmm. yeah and that's kind of where this album switches uh is in the narrative because none of the songs here kind of take on that uh biographical um point of view uh although each one looks at death in a certain way but Alay uh is from the point of view of the cancer towers from the point of view of the medication uh and flow is from her mother's point of view but there's never a song on here uh that really talks super directly about death uh 
despite the very dark uh, themes on the record, which is where it kind of uh, varies from something like A Crow Looked at Me that is very focused in on death as a concept and what comes because of it. Yeah, that that actually is a very interesting and succinct way of putting it because as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, like, I can't wait to revisit this album despite how, you know, depressing it is. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, with A Crow Looked at Me, that is an album that is very, very hard to revisit. And I think that is in due large part to the kind of songwriting that is on it Mm -hmm. um, and the perspective it takes. And I do find it interesting that both albums were recorded during an intense grieving process, it would seem. Um, And uh, it's interesting that um, uh, Katie Gately was able to craft an album that can be kind of re-listened to and enjoyed from a songwriting perspective Mm -hmm. and and still touches on those raw emotions and uh, the process and what she was going through at the time without being so raw that it's like kind of uncomfortable to listen to yeah it's not uh despite being dark it's not as heavy yeah um i do think that again goes to show her talent as a songwriter Mm -hmm. uh you know not that uh phil elvram is obviously a, a very incredible songwriter but um just with these two albums even though they were both uh birthed from similar life events uh, they were, I think, shooting for very different things. Yeah, I think they focused the energy of grieving in very different ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, another thing that I wanted to say with this album was when I was doing my research, I realized how beautifully and, and uh, purposefully put together it was. Mm-hmm. Um, the three instrumental tracks on here are all... Uh, fairly short i think around two minutes or just under uh, ritual rites and rest mm-hmm. and uh it wasn't until i heard her talk about the those three tracks as a triptych that i even connected them in my mind uh despite the alliterative nature of them mm-hmm. um and when i did that it, this album really does tell a story just from multiple perspectives it's, it's a short story you know but the perspectives from which it's being told um really enhance and, and uh, put you in every angle of the narrative, mm-hmm. um, as it were. Uh, and that, at various points, this album to me felt uh, operatic, uh, specifically in how, to my ears, a lot of the songs didn't follow a standard uh, pop format, even when they did have those hooks. Yeah, uh, It wasn't like a verse-chorus-verse thing, but each of these songs did grow as they went along like uh songs within an opera do uh and i think that some of the theatric uh or her sound design and um uh, experience in that might help bring some of that into the uh sound of the album mm-hmm. uh as well the other thing that i was going to say was that uh yeah oh, like the narrative feels very operatic to me in yeah. that it is um, telling this very short short story uh, through these just like beautifully crafted songs and poems where it's not always clear from what perspective we're talking until you kind of get the full picture into focus, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad that you brought up that operatic nature of this album because I think something else that contributes to that is the use of voice throughout the album. Um, 
because while it is only Katie singing, uh, and we kind of touched on it before, she's uh, manipulating her own voice, layering her own voice, uh, and so much of it is just built up from these different vocal parts that are all going on at the same time, uh, kind of lending itself to that more operatic feel as well. Yeah, it's... (laughs) <laughs> this is uh, again another point of comparison I drew while listening to this album in part due to how the vocals were laid out and designed on various tracks um, <laughs> people are going to get mad at this one I think <laughs> but uh, was the Billie Eilish record that came out recently okay um, I thought that at certain points the vocals were laid out in kind of a similar way uh, as in how they play with the instrumental and just mm-hmm. the layers and layers of harmony, um, uh, it, they, it sounded similar to me on on both of those. And going back to Waltz, the kind of playful three four time, mm-hmm. uh, despite how dark the track is, it is still you know it is a waltz. It's it's done in that style. That reminded me of something that uh, Billie Eilish did on her uh, big breakthrough album out last year as well. Uh, if that is a a, a valid take, um, that is one that I feel like people might get. Uh, upset with that are uh, fans of <laughs> this album but uh also the um this is not a deconstructed club album in the slightest but no. there are these kind of club style synths throughout mm-hmm. uh like on that track waltz and a few times on bracer as well i think um the way that they're utilized on here though is so interesting like on waltz you have this kind of growling bass that's throughout um, that feels like something that could be reappropriated into like a dance track, but is taken and so sparsely uh, uh, put out uh, in that song that and it runs through the entire track. It makes it feel like something very different uh, than what I think it would normally be uh, utilized with, if that uh, makes sense. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and I hate to cut this short because I know there's so much to say <laughs> about this album, but I'm going to go ahead and ask for uh, your closing thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, in closing, definitely listen to this. This one passed me by entirely uh, this year. And I'm super glad that you recommended it. it. It did remind me of a lot of my favorite records from last year. Like I said, that FK Twigs, Magdalene, uh, Lingua Ignata's Caligula as well. Um, but this is very much its own thing. Uh, it does take a lot of inspiration from those kind of uh, experimental electronic and a little bit of neoclassical, some dark wave, but it very much does its own thing uh, within those sounds and puts together something altogether new. Uh, and it's this great uh, pontification on grief. And like I said, if this album doesn't stick with you immediately, because it did take me a little while to get into it too, um, look up the... This is an album that definitely... Uh, uh, is enhanced from reading into it and finding out why some of these choices were made and what went into making this record uh, because just the the uh, process of making this record is such a it was such a beautiful and, and meticulous thing that I have to respect it at least for that um, and then when revisiting those songs, it did bolster my respect that much more for an album that I already did like quite a bit upon first listen. But uh, I think learning that is what to me made it just absolutely great. And uh, what song are we going to hear from this? Um, well, let's do the track uh, Tower. I do recommend the track Bracer, but for time reasons, we'll, uh, we'll play Tower from this one.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening to the second episode of uh, Say Something Nice. You can catch new episodes Wednesday at noon on U92 The Moose. Uh, and we also re-air our episodes Sundays at noon as well. Uh, and as we've said, you can find us on the U92 SoundCloud on U92TheMoose.com. What do we have coming up next week, Griffin? What do you reckon me? Uh, next week, I am recommending you the uh, AJJ record, uh, People Who Can Eat Other People Are the Luckiest People in the World. Uh, this is their 2007 breakthrough album, not their debut. A lot of people think it's their debut. They had an album before this, but this is the one that got them uh, to the folk punk stardom with which they now reign. Uh, and and what I are also, you recommending me, Anthony? <laughs> I also have a sophomore album for you. It is Leonard Cohen's uh, second album, Songs and Love, uh, Songs of Love and Hate, one of my personal favorites. And I'm glad I'm uh, excited to hear your opinion on it. But Excellent. until then, uh, here is Tower. Thank you so much for listening to U92 The Moose. This was Say Something Nice. And this is Tower by Katie Gately. to take
to it.